This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. We continue our conversation about the state of politics and our culture with a look at how backlash around the pandemic is just the latest in a legacy of white backlash that has played a significant role in American history. Lawrence Glickman is a professor of history at Cornell University, and he recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic about this. It's called How White Backlash Controls American Progress. Professor Glickman, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yes, it's great to have you. So I want to start with the headlines this morning and over the weekend about 46-year-old George Floyd, who was killed by police in Minneapolis, uh, and this woman, Amy Cooper, in Central Park, who threatens to call the police and tell them that a black man is threatening her uh, because Christian Cooper had asked her to leash her dog. Uh, racial tension is, of course, very much alive and well in America. But I think these two incidents really call on the dynamic that you write about in this piece, this idea of white backlash to African-American progress, but not just progress, but African-American existence, uh, the very space that we occupy in this country uh, as black people, is seen so often as a threat to the rest of America. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. One of the things that has struck me in researching the history of various backlashes in the United States, which um, currently focused mainly on the uh, Reconstruction era and the Civil Rights era, but I'm also trying to tie it together with anti-New Deal backlash and contemporary backlashes, of the sort you're talking about. And one of the things that really struck me is the way in which um, what you might call white emotional fragility and fear is foregrounded in the language of backlashes. Mm -hmm. And it kind of excuses almost any behavior, um, no matter how irrational the fear is or how ungrounded in reality, um, that is become so much of what the the political dynamic becomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you write that backlash dynamics are one of the defining patterns of this country's history. Let's start there by looking at the history of black backlash and the term itself. What can you tell us about where and when this term backlash even originated? It's interesting because um, the term really developed its modern connotation um, in 1963 after John F. Kennedy proposed Um, some serious civil rights legislation, which ultimately resulted in the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And almost immediately after he proposed that, which I think was in June of 1963, uh, journalists began talking about this thing that they called the white backlash. And that really uh, term just came to dominate political coverage in um, 1964 in coverage of the Civil Rights Act and also the presidential campaign that pitted Lyndon Johnson against Barry Goldwater. 
But my argument is that, and by the way, prior to that, backlash uh, had a number of meanings, but the primary meaning was kind of technical, having to do with the recoil of, uh, of a machine or of a fishing rod. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, um, it didn't really have the kind of political meaning that we attribute to it today as sort of a reaction against um, social movements and uh, campaigns for equality. But I think that that dynamic that emerged in the so-called white backlash of 1963 and four um, has clear predecessors, especially in the Reconstruction era. And I think you can trace it back even further in American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, it also, I think, really illuminates the extent to which race and racism and racial tensions are the master narrative almost of American history, that, that uh, there is no period of time, there is no stretch of time where that is not uh, one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent uh, source of conflict uh, in the country. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I think that that um, dynamic, which again, is very clearly played out in the Reconstruction era. This, you know, this experiment in interracial democracy, and what's just, what's so striking about that period is how um, quickly so many white Americans, uh, even in the North, turned against it and said, "We've gone too far. We, you know, we we've done too much." Uh, you know, a year or two after the Civil War had ended and after uh, African American emancipation. Uh, there was there was this impatience that was just it's really striking to read and uh has just been recapitulated time and time again um in um in in other backlash campaigns including today's mm-hmm. um, my guest is Lawrence Glickman he's a professor of history at Cornell University uh, he is also the author of a piece in the Atlantic a recent piece called white backlash is nothing new it takes a look at uh the history of backlash against black progress in the United States, something that we are seeing play out, I think, right now very heavily in the headlines of today about George Floyd in Minneapolis or Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper in Central Park in New York. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and talk about what you've noticed about white backlash to black progress. How does that play out in your community or in your life, Uh, whether it was in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, or maybe you remember the backlash to other kinds of movements, uh, the LGBTQ movement, for instance, uh, of the 2000s. Call and tell us what you think of the constant resistance that meets cultural progress in this country and where do you think it comes from. Also, tell us what you think we ought to be doing about that. That's something that I am seeing a number of people start to really press right now in light of what happened in Minneapolis and in Central Park. We see these things happen over and over again. And the question is, how do we solve these problems? How do we change American culture and society so that these kinds of dynamics don't exist uh, to the extent they do and don't pose the lethal threat uh, that they do to so many African-Americans. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put 
comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. But let's go to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hey. Hello, Professor. Hi. Uh, this um, conversation we're having about uh, white backlash, mm-hmm. it, it ties in with a uh, previous guest you had, Stephen Luxembourg, in his book, Separate. Steve Luxembourg, sure, yes. Yeah, and um, Stephen emphasized the fact that um, integration has to occur even in contemporary terms, dating from Plessy versus Ferguson forward. And I think this is how it applies right here in our metropolitan region as well. And I think what the solution is, the panacea, if you will, is just to continue to strive forward with integrative approaches, you know, such as, um, you know, job prospects and just general enfranchisement of uh, people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I really appreciate the call and, of course, the reference to Steve Luxembourg and his book uh, about Plessy versus versus Ferguson. Uh, uh, Lawrence Glickman, and I, I wonder what you make of this idea of integration uh, of further kinds of enfranchisement as tools to push back against backlash. Yeah, I think um, you know, I think it's important, um, but I also think that one of the one of the dynamics we see is that um, you know, on the one hand, universal programs. Um, would seem to be, uh, you know, a potential solution to this. But I think what we saw in the 1960s is as the many of the New Deal programs that were, um, you know, were, uh, for example, Social Security, which excluded many African Americans when it first started in the 1930s, um, began to be more universal as it incorporated more workers in professions that African Americans uh, dominated. Um, uh, as those things happened, uh, white resentment increased. So even though nothing was being taken away from whites, but just the idea that these benefits were now being extended universally was seen, uh, uh, often seen as a zero-sum game in which whites were losing mm. and other groups were gaining. And you get a discourse of special rights, um, you know, special privileges and so forth. Uh, when really what we're talking about is equal rights to, you know, to uh, federal benefits that we all pay taxes for, uh, that we all deserve as citizens of the country. Yeah. So I do think that it is an important uh, approach. I agree with the caller that it's a, it's a very important approach, uh, but it doesn't necessarily stop backlash arguments from being made. Yeah. Uh, what, what you're saying also reminds me of one of the, the I think, kind of pillars of this kind of backlash, and it's and it is disproportionality, uh, and it's both disproportionality in terms of what people are reacting to, as you point out, that that uh, very minor progress or very minor nods toward equality for African Americans uh, elicit a, 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 a huge response, a huge negative response uh, from from many white people, and and then. The consequence, the reaction to it, what happens as a result, is also often quite disproportional. Uh, in both the Central Park and the Minneapolis examples, I think we see that disproportionality on, again, on both ends, both in terms of what the reaction is to and what the consequence 
was. Yeah, I, can I add one thing to that, Steve? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think one thing uh, additional, I think that those are both on point. And the other thing that I've really noticed in my research, which I tried to highlight a little bit in my Atlantic article, is that um, I think one of the dynamics of backlash that we've sort of underestimated is the degree to which it often constrains people um, who are, you know, of good faith, who are, who want racial equality and social equality, uh, but who often live in fear of setting off backlashes. Mm -hmm. And so you find a lot of sort of self-censoring about uh, programs and policies uh, for the fear that it might set off a backlash. And I don't think you find the equivalent on uh, the conservative side of the aisle. In other words, I think that um, generally conservative politicians and policymakers push policies that they believe in, and they don't really worry that much about the backlash that it might set off. But I feel like it's not really been symmetrical through most of uh, our recent past. There's been much more fear on the uh, liberal progressive side of the um, spectrum that Oh, this policy, we might want to reconsider this because even though it's a good policy, it might set off a potential backlash and might, it might backfire. Yeah. Um, so this, it, it tends to, uh, that tends to work in a cycle as well. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Lawrence Glickman about white backlash to black progress. And we're going to get to calls. Kevin in Monroe, John on the east side, Deborah in Detroit, and Yolanda in Detroit. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Lawrence Glickman. He is professor of history at Cornell University and recently wrote an article for The Atlantic about white backlash to black progress. So we're talking about that issue in history and as it exists today. As always, we want to hear from you 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show. My call. So my observation is that uh, as a white guy living in the city of Detroit, when I have trades out here or the guys that are working on the remediation, the flooding remediation we have down here, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the, the people I work with in the, in the downtown they presume since i'm blonde hair blue-eyed and very caucasian that uh they can they can say things tell off-color jokes and all that and uh it's it's very prevalent and sometimes at work they even talk about the guys right in front of them and uh oh you know the the stereotypes i'm not even going to say them uh this you've heard them all and it's uh, it's disgusting it's absolutely disgusting, and uh, and it always puts me in a in a situation that I, I'm I don't know how to deal with because if you don't laugh at jokes, you you know then you know so it's huh. it's very apparent, and this is 2020, and it's very sad. Yeah, John, I can't imagine. 
how difficult that is uh, to, to deal with. Uh, Larry Glickman, this is one of the things you're talking about is this idea of silence in some cases uh, or, or speaking up and the choices that people make and what effect they have on, on this, this dynamic. Yeah, it's, I mean that. What I think what you know what the caller is describing is one of the ways in which you know what scholars call whiteness is created mm-hmm. is uh, you know you're in the circle of whiteness. Uh, you know you get what W. E. B. Du Bois called the psychological wage of being uh, considered a white person and the privileges that are extended to that. And I I agree completely that um, I think uh, it can put. Um, white people who are in a group of other people who are who are um, insisting on conferring whiteness upon them in a very awkward position, uh, and I think it's a it's a very very common dynamic of you know of group um, uh, alignment. Yeah, yeah. Again, John, thank you very much for the call and for your candor there uh, in in your question. Um, let's go to Deborah in Detroit, Deborah. Welcome to the show. Hi there. I'm going to be as brief as possible because I talk a lot. (laughs) I I have copyrighted the term black flash to describe this very thing. And the reason, uh, uh, well, you've described the effects, but I pinpoint the source of this trouble to the lies that the landowners told 400-some-odd years ago, we're really starting in 1619, when they went and got farmers, agricultural scientists, stole them away, worked them for free, told the poorer whites around them that they called behind their back poor white trash. They're the ones that came up with that. Nobody else did. But they are the ones that incited the differences by using ignorance. Well, they're savages. Uh, the people that we stole the land from are savages. They don't deserve this stuff. No. We deserve this stuff. You deserve this stuff. And so uh, uh, raising those people up in uh, white citizens' councils to keep the people down during Reconstruction, Uh, the very lack of education in the South that is still prevalent today, these people don't even know the history of what happened. And so the blacklash rises up Mm. even when the Tea Party is faced Mm. with Michelle and Barack, and they just lost it. And, And so it is based really in the lies that the wealthy landowners told in order to perpetrate the things that they did, the theft of the land, the theft of the labor of uh, skilled people. Folks, people don't even know that the crops that we grew here were grown in the places that they took the people from. Right. They don't even know that. you got to read The Cooking Gene sure. by uh, Michael Twitty to <laughs> yeah. get that. Yeah, no, that's but a good book. Uh, Deborah, I, I, I do really appreciate your call, and I, I really like that term, blacklash. I haven't heard that's that. That's baby. 
I haven't heard that before. You could, you should, should absolutely copyright that. <laughs> um, uh, Lawrence Clickman, I wonder if you have a quick response to, to what Well, Deborah's my saying. quick response is that I love the deep history that Deborah yeah, is tracing out. And yeah. I think it's really important to, uh, to look back. Uh, you know, a book that I'd recommend kind of on this subject is uh, Edmund Morgan's book, American Slavery, American Freedom, mm-hmm. which goes all the way back to the 17th, 17th century Virginia to look for the roots of these uh, phenomena. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Deborah, really appreciate the call. Let's go to John, who is a police officer. John, welcome to the show. How are you today, guys? Good. I, I just felt the need to comment on what I saw on that video with Mr. Floyd. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, he, he was killed. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could lose my job over what I'm saying here, but it was completely wrong completely wrong we are all human beings and as an officer the guy standing there when the guy's saying hey i can't breathe dude okay you fought with him you got him in cuffs throw him in the back of the god blessed car for god's sakes yeah he may kick out the window he may kick out the divider he may do whatever it's that's property this is not a human life that Mm. it's not worth his life Mm. i i am i'm disgusted at somebody in my profession that would think that that was okay completely disgusted and another officer i was talking to last night that actually showed me the video feels the same way and and as officers we need to speak out against it Mm. and john i think that's a really important point and as you point out it puts you in a vulnerable position right uh speaking out that way but but larry glickman that is part of what we need to do uh is is have people stand up and say from within the ranks of the powerful, uh, this is not this is not okay. Yes, I, I think so, and it's been really interesting to hear. So far, we've had two calls uh, along along these lines of um, of you know uh, people within uh, an in group mm-hmm. uh, expressing outrage at, at what they're what they're seeing. I think that's a very important um, important dynamic that um, hopefully will will grow. And uh, and that that's one way to challenge the backlash mentality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, quickly, I want to go to Kevin and Monroe. Kevin, we've only got about a minute and a half left, but I really wanted to get your your comment in here. Hey, how's it going, guys? I'm good. Good. Um, so I think for me, uh, one thing that I'm I'm realizing uh, a big key part of this is education, not just as, as individuals as a as a culture. Um, especially as white Americans, there's there's a responsibility that we have to educate other white Americans, especially on what is racism and what is not racism. I think that people have forgotten what it means to stand up for someone else, because like you were talking about before, they're afraid of backlash from from friends, from family, from whomever. And that idea has been lost. And I think that really needs to be regained somewhere down the line. Here. Yeah, uh, Kevin, I, I, I absolutely agree. And Really appreciate you adding that to uh, to the conversation here, Larry Glickman. I'll give you the last word uh, on this. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I would say <laughs> it's, I think it's one of the reasons why uh, you know I think history is making a comeback in the age of Trump. A lot of people want to understand the history of dynamics that that we see all around us today that make us many of us uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Lawrence Glickman, professor of history at Cornell University. A really provocative piece that you wrote in The Atlantic, and thank you very much for joining us to talk about it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah.
Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow for my conversation with one of the attorneys who was involved in a federal lawsuit against the Wayne County Sheriff's Office for its handling of COVID-19 safety measures for those who are medically vulnerable and living behind bars. Yes, the narrative about COVID and jails and prisons continues to unfold here in Southeast Michigan. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.